Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, so we've been going through this 2020 series on how do we see the world from a Christian perspective. And we've been covering lies that the culture tells us the past three weeks. This week we're shifting. The lies will no longer build off each other. And they're not as um, psychological, even though the third point is, um, in nature. Um, but they do cover a main question that is asked specifically with your age group um, that lives in an evidential culture. Um, so, and the lie is you can't know what the Bible really says. Um, this is preached on the college campus. Now that Christmas is coming up, it'll probably make some headlines on DirecTV, not DirecTV, but uh, Discovery Channel and National Geographic and everywhere else that really does bad history. Um, so, the question posed to you tonight, of course, is this. Can you hit the uh, next slide? Where does the evidence lead concerning the historical accuracy of the Bible? Where does the evidence lead concerning the historical accuracy of the Bible? Can we trust the Bible? Can we trust who wrote it? Where did it come from? And before we dive into such a broad topic, and it is a broad topic, I'd like to put the lens on the issue as we approach it and frame the question a specific way. And to do that, we're going to really cover three things tonight when it goes to this question. Can you hit the next slide, please? Where are we heading? One, what do people really believe concerning the Bible? Two, how do I know the New Testament is historically reliable? And three, can I trust the authors of the New Testament? Okay? So, let's go to the first section, which is, what do people believe concerning the Bible? You can hit the next slide. Okay? Um, First, people believe in the culture that it was changed hundreds of times over hundreds of years. You might have heard something like this. It's been copied so many times, they have no idea what the original said. If you don't have the originals, you can't ever trust what the copy said. At minimum, this belief brings up things that you should know about the Bible. You as Christians should know these things about the Bible. Namely, that we don't have the original copies. You should know that. Don't make the claim otherwise. We only have copies of copies. We don't argue this point. Our argument is against the premise that therefore you can't know what was said. It's why we have the work of textual criticism. So what is textual criticism? We actually have the world's most leading scholar on textual criticism. It goes to our church. So you can take Dan out for coffee if you ever want. But textual criticism is this. It's the science of trying to determine what the original said. It's the science of trying to determine what the original said. Well, what happened to the originals? AJ, what happened to the originals? Well, they were written on papyrus, which is more sturdy than paper, but... It's still not steel, so it dissolves over time. The 27 originals were sent to various churches, and they were copied so often that they turned to dust. Not like instant Thanos dust, but like they were used a lot. And now we have copies of the copies of what the textual critics use. Okay, And some of these textual critics are non-Christians. The most popular one is a former Christian, Bart Ehrman. He's a guy that many of those in the popular level will quote. If you, see him, if you see something on the History Channel about the Gospels or something, he's typically one of the ones on there. Um, I got to sit in on an interview with Bart as he shared his deconversion story. And like so many before, it had a lot more to do with the moral emotional issue than a doctrinal one. Um, he encountered suffering and didn't know how to handle it. And we'll talk about that 
in the following weeks. But you should know that there are scholars who don't, don't hold to our opinion and promote this belief. You should know that. When you walk into the college campus, um, they will probably hold to more Bart's belief. Um, they say things like they can't really know what the Bible said. And this is the idea of radical skepticism. And that is, if you can't know for 100% certain of something, then you should be agnostic about it. Now, when we talked about truth, we might have, I forget if we touched on this in transformation group questions. That's quite absurd because I think there's a very limited amount of things that we can actually know for certain. Um, we don't even know for certain if there was a history right before this moment. For all we know, we were created with um, memories of a past that didn't exist, right? Can't be 100%. That's not true. We don't know. So we can't be 100% certain of it, right? There are only a few things that we can actually be certain of. Um, so to believe that if you can't be 100% certain, you should be an agnostic, I think is folly. Now, I am not advocating for absolute certainty. That's the other end of the spectrum that Christians will jump to. They'll play, no, no, it has to be exactly KJV only, you know? If it was uh, good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. Um, for KJV only. Like, they, they hold to, a lot of people will hold to some radical absolute certainty. But I want you to know that there are things we can know for sure about the text. And there are things that we don't know for sure. There are things in the Bible that we don't know for sure. But as I will show you later, we don't hide these from you. There's no bushel. Okay? So, we're going to go to our next point. Click. Um, don't do anything, Zach. Okay. <laughs> They're going to be my clicker. You're going to be my clicker. So when I say next slide, I need you to clap twice. Okay, so next slide. Okay, and then you'll click. So that should get your attention from, you know, if you're on Fortnite or something. <laughs> I know, yeah, preach it again. I'll be next week's sermon on 2020. How do I know um, that the New Testament is historically reliable? Next slide. Try it again. Next slide. How do I know the New Testament is historically reliable? Let's put scripture aside for the moment. Remember, I'm not arguing from the Bible. The lie discussed tonight is you can't know what the Bible really says. So if I'm arguing from the Bible, then it's a big circular reasoning. So let's take a look at some of the non-biblical evidence that points to the fact the same Bible we have today is the same Bible as the original. Let's assume that the Bible did not exist at all. Well, the Bible does not exist. All 27 New Testament books had vanished during a mass burning of manuscripts under Emperor Diocletian in AD 303. Would we know anything about Jesus? Yes. Yes, the answer is yes. We know a lot of key facts about him. And the reason we know a lot of key facts is there are tons of non-Christian scholars, some of them anti-Christian scholars, that wrote about Jesus within the first two centuries of the crucifixion, which is great for any historical biography. Histories of Josephus, Celsus, Pliny the Younger, Suetonius, Thallus, Pelagian, Maraben, Serapon, Lucian, Heredian, Tacitus, and the Jewish Talmud the last three being anti-Christian sources. Okay? In total, there are ten non-Christian sources supporting the life of Jesus. And the reason that's important is because there's only nine 
sources that point to the existence of Emperor um, Tiberius Caesar, who was the emperor during the reign of Jesus. So we're saying there are more sources for Jesus than there were the emperor at the time. Okay? And from all those sources, we can tell you 12 facts about the life of Jesus. Next section. Good try. That was bad. Let's try it one more time. Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar, point two. He lived a virtuous life, point three. He was a wonder worker, point four. He had a brother named James, point five. He was, an, he was acclaimed to be the Messiah, point six. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, point seven. He was crucified on the eve of the Jewish Passover, point eight. Darkness and an earthquake occurred when he died, point nine. His disciples believed he rose from the dead or formed the dead. Point 10. His disciples were willing to die for their belief. Point 11. Christianity spread rapidly as far as Rome. And point 12. His disciples denied the Roman gods and worshipped Jesus as God. Wow. Okay? So if all the New Testament had vanished, these were the facts that we could pull from non-Christian resources about Jesus. Which is a lot. Right? The implications of non-Christian resources are rich. And these are the two things that they imply that you need to hold fast to. One, there is this idea that Jesus never existed. It's on the internet. Um, it's, it's with people. I, what's, what's his name? He's like the, um, the something infidel. Um, oh, so, I know what you're talking you about. You know what I'm talking about. And he'll purport this and like... No one believes this in historical circles. You will not find one historian on the globe who has a published historian that believes this. Because if you look at the evidence, it's undeniable that Jesus existed. So Jesus very much existed. Two, on face value, the non-Christian authors affirm the New Testament. While they do not believe in the resurrection... They report that the disciples certainly did, and that Christianity grew at an alarming rate within the Roman Empire in the face of constant persecution, including leaders of the movement getting killed. I'll go further. If we still didn't have any copies of the New Testament, we have the church fathers who lived within the first two centuries of the cross. They wrote sermons and commentaries. They did not know what brevity was, okay? They would not have survived in the age of Twitter because these guys went on and on and on, right? They wrote sermons and commentaries. There's a group in Germany that cataloged the writings of the church fathers, and you know how many times they quoted the New Testament? Over a million times. These guys quoted the New Testament over a million times. Let me make this even more of a point. There are less than 8,000 verses in all of the New Testament. And the church fathers quoted it over a million times. So even if we didn't have any of the manuscripts, if we just had the non-Christian sources and the work of the church fathers, we could compile the Bible. Um, from the, so your next, It's your first fill in the blank. You can hit the next slide. From quotations from the church fathers, you can reproduce the whole 
of the New Testament many times over. Well, how, do, how does the New Testament fare in regard to the ancient world? That should be our next question. Well, I mean, how does it do with other ancient works? How does it compare? So let's take the best of the pack. We're not taking the losers. We're not even talking about them, but the best of the pack. So understand I'm not, I'm u- not using bum manuscripts, manuscripts in history. Turn to the next slide. Thank you. So these are some of the best. Uh, unfortunately, when I moved it from keynote to PowerPoint, it moved some of them. So let me tell you. Pliny, we got seven copies, seven manuscripts. Caesar, 10. Tacitus, 20. Plato, 7. Herodotus, 8. Demonthesis, 200. Homer, 643. New Testament. Let's go to the next slide. Is 5,000. We're going to round down. It's really round down now. It's 5,800. So that should have been updated. 5,800. And that's just the Greek copies. If we include everything else, if we include the Syrian, the Coptic, the Latin, the Arabic, you're looking at over 16,000 manuscripts. And I want to make this clear. These aren't just bum manuscripts. These are. I think it's like somewhere between 100 and 200 pages each manuscript. So it's not like, here's my little... There's some that are this small, right? But many of them are massive. If you put all the works of Aristotle and you stack them up, right? You're going to get a stack about four feet high. So, Ari, right? (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. Silas. Silas. About four feet high, right? If you stack all the manuscripts we have of the New Testament up, you're going to get a stack that's over a mile tall. Andrew, what, so what, what, uh, what considers a manuscript in the New Testament? Like something that was just published last week? Is not no, right? so that's a good question. A manuscript of the New Testament is anything before the printing press. Okay. So that's what we have. Now, what about the earlier portion? So, the earlier it is, the copy to the original, less chance for something to creep in, right? Absolutely. Next slide. What about the distance between the original and the earliest known copy? I don't know, Zach. Tell us. Next slide. Pliny, you have about 750 years. Caesar, 1,000. Tacitus, 1,000. That's good. No, for history, that's good. Um, Plato, 1,200. Herodotus, 1,400. Demothesis, 1,400. Homer, 500. New Testament, the earliest copy we have of the New Testament is 25 to 50 years after. This is known as the John Ryland fragment. Gives us some of the portions of the Gospel of John. While this is impressive, though, I don't think it really matters. Okay, for those of you who want to know, many of the manuscripts we have are within the first 400 years, which is still beats anything on the board. Okay, but I don't think it matters. When the New Testament is reconstructed, portion of the talk comes up here in a second. Um, I want you to, sh- I want to show you that 
really because of how many locations we find it in, that's what makes it so impressive. Because if you have all very similar copies in Middle East, Rome, and in Africa, that means they're the copies of the copies of the copies as they moved. And if they're all saying the same thing, well, that becomes impressive. Here's the fact, though. It's your next slide. The fact is that the New Testament wipes the floor with every other work of antiquity. It's your next one on the blank. It wipes the floor with every other work of antiquity. And I'm not saying this because I like the Bible, but I'm saying this because I just think it's true. Honestly, every other work of antiquity shouldn't even be in the same discussion as the Bible. Because it just wipes it wipes the floor of it with it, y'all. It kills it. But AJ, next slide. What about the roughly 400,000 errors in the New Testament manuscripts? What do you do with that? 400,000, that's a big word. And number. <laughs> if you think about it, there's only 140,000 words in all of the New Testament. So why do we have so many errors? While this is a very well-publicized statistic, unfortunately it's very misleading. They're not errors, but variants. Well, AJ, what the junk is a variant? You're just playing English with me, um, which I don't like playing English. I did decent in that class, but I don't like playing English. So let me tell you what a variant is. It's on your next slide. Way to beat, okay? Well, what's a variant? Any place among the manuscripts that have a variation in wording, word order, omission... Addition or even spelling. It's your next fill in the blank. That's what it is. What is a variant? Any place among the manuscripts that have a variation in wording, word order, omission, addition, or even spelling. Next slide. Very good. Well, before we can answer the obvious question of dis- Diving into the variants, we have to ask this question, which is, how was the New Testament reconstructed? And it's an obvious question, right? Um, let me paint a picture. I used to be a camp counselor, worked with four to six-year-olds for eight hours a day during the summer. We used to play a game called telephone. Now, many of you don't understand that because you all have cell phones. And so, this is constant. You can be on group chats, right? Like, it's weird. We used to play this game called the telephone game. Um, it's a game where one person would whisper into someone else's ear, and they'd keep whispering into someone else's ear until it got to the last person, right? Um, it's a blast, especially with about 24 and 6-year-olds who don't know the English language well. Okay, One kid, I'll call him Clark to protect his identity. If he was kid number 20, he got to tell everyone else what the phrase ended up being. And he would scream out phrases with fruits and vegetables because he thought it was funny. <laughs> Even if it had nothing to do with the phrase, right? It probably didn't help that I was laughing every time he yelled out, Susie has a stinky banana. Right? He is not a good last person in this game. Okay? Well, what does this have to do at the Bible? The claim will be leveled against the Bible... 
that it was passed along much like the telephone game, and that the Bible we have today is a stinky banana. <laughs> Luckily for us, the Bible was not comprised using the telephone game. This challenge leveled against the New Testament is based on two, two, <laughs> two misconceptions about the transmission of ancient documents. The first assumption about the transmission of ancient documents is that they're linear. Well, AJ, what do you mean by that? Linear is kind of like um, you see on the evolution t-shirts. No. The, the chimp slowly becomes a man with a stick. Right? That's a linear move. But the manuscripts were not linear as they evolved. Um, it's more like a family tree in which you have one and that one becomes seven and that seven becomes 40 and that 40 becomes 200. And, I mean, compound interest is great. Those of you that are looking to make money for the rest of your life, this is good, right? Um, so it's not linear. Um, it is made more like a tree. Um, the way it's moved. So there are very various generations. Um, the second assumption is that it was orally transmitted. Uh, it's written. Okay, that's why we have manuscripts, right? In the telephone game, it is an oral transmission. And you can't correct it. That's one of the points of the telephone game. You get to tell the person next to you once, right? Like they weren't sitting there with the manuscripts going, here's John 1-1, you have 10 seconds. <laughs> and then I'm going to cover it with my hand. John 1, 2, right? That's not how it was played. They literally got to check, right? Right? They got to check. So it wasn't done that way either. Neither assumption applies to the written text of the New Testament or any other ancient manuscript for the matter. First, the transmission was not linear, as I said. Second, the transmission in question was done in writing. Again, written manuscripts can be tested in a way that oral communication cannot. So let me take this example. This is my favorite example. Let's say... Let's go with Knox. Knox has come up with the coolest youth group game on the planet. He calls this game Susie's Stinky Bananas. He writes it down. He writes it down. See, I need to choose someone else. Mia. Mia. Oh, sorry. Knox. Knox does not like computers. So at one of the youth group meetings, he, let five, he lets five others copy by hand the instructions for the game. Susie's Stinky Bananas. We are so moved by such an awe-inspiring game involving rotten bananas and a tennis racket. Now I've got you thinking. <laughs> that when we meet with our friends in each of our communities, we let them copy down the game by hand too. But somewhat, something happens, or should I say someone happens. Mia gets so overwhelmed that she eats Knox's original copy of Susie's Stinky Bananas. That's incredible. He is distraught. Knox is distraught. And he contacts his five original friends, hoping they have the copies. In a sad turn of irony, Mia has also eaten their copies too. So Knox asks all his friends to contact their friends who had written copies of Susie's Sticky Bananas. And he was able to gather 34 different copies. Do you think he could figure out what the original said? 
To ask the question as relates to our conundrum, do you think someone with no knowledge of Susie's thinking bananas could figure out what the original said? Sure, even if the fact that two copies said peel then crush instead of crush then peel, and there's several misspellings and one person added LOL at the end of the game, they could still figure it out. That's the way you reconstruct the original New Testament and is very similar. Compare many copies and quotations allows an extremely accurate reconstruction, even with errors in the copies. Some of you saw the game that we played tonight. Even though you didn't, you knew three letters, you didn't even know what words were there. But you could figure it out by looking at different manuscripts to kind of figure out, oh, that's what that would mean in that language. That wasn't very hard. All of you, I think, turned in sheets, right? So let's use Philippians 4.13. Next slide, please. So no telephone. Next slide, please. 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So one on the slide are hypothetical copies. You all things. Okay. <laughs> one, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Two, I can do all through Christ who gives me strength. Three, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Four, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Look, I hate to break it to you. Ancient people are just like you. They didn't know how to spell either. And they didn't have spell check. Right? Some things never change. Speaking of things, could number four be thinks? Oh, yeah. Yes. But that doesn't make much sense. So we have to explore, I don't know, the English language to figure out what it might say. It could also be fins there, right? Which would, um, sorry, um, it could also be fins there, which would exclude fat people from heaven. <laughs> Which means, if that's the case, Jenny Craig and Tony Horton should be sainted. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, do we have a Sherlock-style mystery on our hands? No. No. And here's the joy and the curse of people who copied the New Testament. Some wanted their own letter from Paul. So when the letter or copy was laid out at the church, they would get their own lambskin, writing utensil, and copy of the letter. Some of these individuals saw errors and tried to correct them, some mistakenly. Others wanted exact copies and were meticulous in their copy. Unfortunately, sometimes they perpetuated a mistake within another copy, which leads to my next point. If you have a copy of a letter to the Philippians, and you have ten meticulous copyists, and they all copy number four exactly as it is, then one spelling error would be copied ten times. And when you break down the 400,000 variants, the eleven misspellings would be counted eleven times, not once. Do we still know what it says? Here's the fact. The fact is, of the 400,000 variants, using common sense Greek and comparing the manuscripts, we know our New Testament to be 98.33% pure. 98.33% pure. Yes? Did they ever figure out the thing about holding snakes? I know, like, the last time we talked about it, they were on, like, the verge of maybe discovering something that would verify or not. 
Not, no. I'm not getting an update. Oh, I'll need to follow that Twitter handle. So next slide, please. In the entire text of 20,000 lines, only 40 lines are in doubt, about 400 words. And none of them affect any significant doctrine. No other book is so well authenticated. The great New Testament scholar and Princeton professor Bruce Metzger estimated that the Mahabharata of Hinduism is copied with only 90% accuracy. Homer's Iliad, 95%. By comparison, he estimated the New Testament is about 99.5% accurate. Again, the 0.5% in question does not affect a single doctrine of the Christian faith. And we don't hide those variants. They are not locked in a vault. If you have what I call a cheater Bible, or a study Bible, they're all right there. Many of them, even in these, these aren't cheater Bibles, but they have footnotes. And when you see the footnotes, they're about the variants. We don't hide them from you. They're right there within the text. This is your next, well, it's the next next slide. This is Frederick Kenyon, ancient manuscript authority, summed up the status of the New Testament well when he wrote, It cannot be too strongly asserted that in substance the text of the Bible is certain, especially in the case with the New Testament. The number of manuscripts of the New Testament, of early translations from it, and of quotations from it in the oldest writers of the church, is so large that it is practically certain that a true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in some one or the other of these ancient authorities. This can be said of no other ancient book in the world. Next slide, please. Even Bart Ehrman, in in the appendix of misquoting Jesus, he's the guy at the very beginning who was, um, I was telling you, will be on all these specials over the holiday seasons. He says this, when the editors asked him in the appendix of his book, Misquoting Jesus, which has probably led tens of thousands away from the faith. Why do you believe these core tenets of Christian orthodoxy to be in jeopardy based on the scribal errors you discovered in the biblical manuscripts? His response, essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variance in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. Even even he admits it. When Dan Wallace has debated Bart, and he's done it three times, he brings this up every time. And he gives Bart a chance to, like, clarify it or, you know, remove. And Bart knows it's true, so he, he doesn't remove it. He knows it's to be true, he just doesn't believe it. So we have an accurate copy, AJ. Next Next slide, please. So we have an accurate copy, AJ. What if it's a lie? What if it's a lie? Which leads me to point three of my talk. Next slide. This is where we're heading. We're going to go to the next slide. Can I trust the New Testament authors? Can I trust the authors of the New Testament? Let's pretend that you guys are on the jury. You've been on a jury yet? 
No, you? Heck no. Taylor, how we doing? None of you got a summons? I want to be you old if I do. <laughs> Micaiah, I mean, you've been 18 for a couple weeks. No? Never! I get a summons, but I've never been selected. I've never been selected. They're knuckle. You have to know your civic duty? They're knuckle. This doesn't get selected. Have you been on a jury? Someone but never selected. Some you they put you in a pool of cattle and then they select some of the cattle with the finest meat to serve on the jury. Towers. Welcome to America. Sorry, dude. So you guys are now on a jury, and the New Testament authors are speaking to you. If they are lying, they're committing perjury. Okay? LA cold case detective Jim Wallace, who is a part-time Christian apologist states that every crime that is ever committed typically falls into three categories for motive. Financial motive, lust motive, or power motive. Power motive includes revenge. So let's talk, let's ask if there's any motive for the disciples, the authors of the New Testament's lie. One, is there a financial motive for these guys? No. Did the New Testament authors as early church leaders win financially? No. No. On the contrary, it tells us in Acts that the disciples and the church sold what they had and gave it to those in need. If you don't believe the Bible, then I challenge you to produce one shred of evidence that supports your position. The disciples made out like bandits in a town with no sheriff. Fact is, there is no proof that they gained anything financially. Two, lust. This one's almost comical. What women or group of women did the disciples gain by following Jesus? The lepers? <laughs> Again, like, give me some evidence that the disciples headlined as pimps on high holy days. There's not any. So it's not a financial motive, it's not a lust motive. Clearly, though, power, right? Power. These guys were thrown out of the synagogues. And if you know anything about Jewish culture, that's literally the lifeblood of society. The way you get a job, find a spouse, receive help in times of rough, uh, when times are rough, chance to play Susie's stinky bananas, are gone with the prospect of claiming that Jesus was the Messiah. Further, since Jerusalem is under Roman rule, the fact that Christians are denying Caesar as God is literally leading them to their deaths. Last, and this is your next fill-in-the-blank and next slide. Did they have anything to lose? And the answer? Everything. Everything. Non-Christian sources tell us that leaders of the church died. Think about it. The leaders of their movement, Jesus, the leaders of the movement, Jesus, had died on a cross. Why would they assume their fate would be any different? So from a psychological standpoint, which this was honestly the most convinced. When I was a pagan and I thought about this stuff, I was like, oh, crap. Right? This, was, this is what caught my heart the most. You have an option. You can either believe that with no motive to lie, the disciples of Jesus gave up their safety, the benefits of their culture, and marched to the death for a man they knew didn't rise from the dead, which is compounded... Even worse by Paul, who literally changed sides after the fact, or their motivation was Jesus. 
What they believed to be true drove them to give up their safety, the benefits of the culture, and march to their death. Next slide. But AJ, oh, sorry, that is that. Next slide. But AJ, people die for what they believe all the time. Next slide. Correct. People die for what they believe all the time. 19 people boarded planes over a decade ago and flew them into towers, the Pentagon in the field, believing that they would receive a reward post-death. People die for what they believe all the time. However, people do not die for what they know to be false. Cold case detective, um, Mr. Dr. Wallace, I'm blanking on his name, Jim Wallace, goes farther. And he says he has never overseen a murder or any type of crime where when they were caught in a lie and they were faced with the prospect of being, you know, given the charge of life in prison or death sentence, that they didn't change their tune if they knew it was a lie, right? No one does this. This, to me, is the most powerful apologetic. The disciples who walked with Jesus, who had the most to lose simply by being associated with him, continued after he died. To walk with him, claiming he had risen from the dead. With (coughs) nothing to gain, and with death surely waiting them. Then they wrote accounts of what happened in their lives, only to paint themselves as stupid, stupid, cowardly peasants who walked with God, only to deny him three times, and when the going got tough, run away and hide. So, next slide. So where does the evidence lead concerning the historical accuracy of the Bible? I think it fares extremely well. There is no reason to believe the authors lie. There is no reason to believe we don't have the same New Testament that the original authors wrote. And if the New Testament is true, and Jesus said that not one letter would fall away from the law, Torah, first five books of the Old Testament, and quoted mightily from the other books of the Old Testament, that we can believe on the basis of the quality of the New Testament that the Old Testament, too, is reliable. Study your scriptures. You literally have the word of God, and you can be very confident in them.